because whether it's hyperbaric bupivacaine or another local anesthetic or another analgesic drug or another anesthetic drug or it's an antibiotic, um, you know, we're going to be facing drug shortages for the near future, for the rest of our career perhaps. It's pretty evident that all drug shortages are caused by a broken economic system. Companies have just stopped making them. They say, I'm going to take my resources and do something else. That was a horrible discussion. Uh, and I just remember the look on parents' faces. I mean, the, the, the amazement, the shock, and then the, the anger. So I don't know if it's anything where I could go to the patient and say, I'm really sorry, you may have nausea because I don't have this medication to mix with other ones. I don't really know that. The Etherist, Episode 4, Solutions and an Ethical Dilemma. I think the patient should know. I think, I think you're treating them with something, and if there's an increased side effect because of a certain situation, that I think the patient should know. For 30 years, Massimo has delivered powerful monitoring solutions that have expanded the boundaries and capabilities of non-invasive technologies. As an industry leader in pulse oximetry, Massimo technology is renowned for accuracy, arming clinicians with essential knowledge to support patient safety even in challenging patient conditions. Today, Massimo technology encompasses much more than pulse oximetry. Massimo is now addressing the challenges faced by clinicians through a versatile healthcare automation platform poised to streamline workflows and enhance the practitioner and patient care experience. Discover how healthcare automation powered by Massimo can improve your practice. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. Everyone we interviewed for this story had two things in common when it comes to drug shortages. First, they all thought it's a big problem. Second, all of them are finding ways around it. In the previous three episodes, and go back and listen if you haven't already, we outlined the problem. In this one, we're going to share with you some of the ingenious workarounds that providers have employed. But before we do that, we want to examine an ethical question. In times of shortage, decisions are necessarily quick, And in the face of things like the nocebo effect and known negative effects of stress on the rate of recovery, the question remains. Do patients need to be informed that we changed the medication that we're using? This is Dr. Ruthie Landau. I'm the head of obstetric anesthesia at Columbia University Medical Center. From episode one. Again, if you haven't listened, go back and do so now. We'll wait. In 2018, her facility was one of many that faced a hyperbaric bupivacaine shortage. They found workarounds, mainly by rationing and repurposing other formulas. But they did grapple with whether or not they should inform those under their care that the normal procedures of that care had shifted due to a drug shortage. In this case, that a woman may receive isobaric bupivacaine during a C-section instead of the planned Hyperbaric. And I thought about it uh, quite a lot, actually. I, but I felt that we're giving the same medication. It's used in other countries, just as you asked me before. 
um, there are randomized controlled trials that compared them and didn't feel that there were significant differences. And we didn't feel that it was necessary to inform the patients, particularly in stressful situations. That that was a common for, feeling. As long as the quality of the care if was the same. It's a particular vial of a drug, but I can get in um, a premixed bag and the patient's going to get the exact same drug. Then telling the patient there's really no impact and it's probably more confusing. just wasn't worth it. That's Michael Gagno again. He's the director of pharmacy practice and quality at the ASHP. Besides, says Ruthie, there may not be time. We often don't have much time to discuss the pros and cons of a general anesthetic because every second in some of these circumstances uh, count and we don't assume that it's in the benefit of the patient to have a conversation. Ruthie also grappled with how to handle communication about the shortage among her peers. One day I mentioned it and they hadn't noticed, which I think is just shows that we probably didn't disrupt the flow of the procedure that much or at all for them to have noticed a difference. And I think that reassured me that if our obstetricians didn't notice that we were using a medication that seemed to us a little bit less reliable, then why should we be telling the patients? Because I don't know that it's going to make that big of a difference to them. I'm hoping that it doesn't. You know, it may just be um, my preferred medication that I like to use that I'm most... um, friendly with sure. because I've used it mm-hmm. the most. And now that I don't have that medication, I'm not sure how the other ones are all going to fit together if they're going to get the same um, nausea relief. That's Alicia Ingram. I'm a certified registered nurse anesthetist here at Baptist LaGrange. So I don't know if it's anything where I could go to the patient and say, I'm really sorry, you may have nausea because I don't have this medication to mix with the other right. ones. I don't really know that. Thankfully, Ruthie's story is typical of the providers we talk to. I compared us to MacGyvers. We know how to make it work even if we don't have what we need. Hard work and ingenuity manage to help gloss over the more gnarly problems caused by shortages. And if the provider or pharmacist could handle the issue without involving the patient or even a colleague, then mission accomplished. But sometimes it's just not possible. Usually when we're at the point of of talking to a patient about the shortages when we don't have any other alternative. And that's a game changer. Remember Dr. Yuram and Guru's super tough conversation from episode one? That was a horrible discussion. Uh, and I just remember the look on parents' faces. I mean, the, 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 the amazement, the shock, and then the, the anger. So the physician should have that discussion with the patient or the pharmacist who's taking care of that patient's chemotherapy regimen should have that conversation with the patient to let them know, here's what we're dealing with, here's, here's what we would normally be giving for your particular case, here's what we're going to give you instead. But the common practice of not alerting patients until absolutely necessary may be to the detriment of all. I think the patient should know. I think, I think you're treating them with something, and if there's an increased side effect because of a certain situation, I, I think the patient should know. A perspective that makes total sense coming from Holly. If you remember from episode one, she's the mother of a high school boy being treated for ALL. What we didn't share then is that she's also the patient representative on Sinai Baltimore's drug shortage advisory panel. Because we need to be able to be not only medically appropriate, but ethically appropriate in how we decide who's going to get drugs here at Sinai. Mm-hmm. Because nobody has skin in the game like like parents and kids. And so Ed Mariano, I'm a professor of anesthesiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Who we heard from in previous episodes says, whatever the reason, whatever the shortage. This is a really critical issue, and it's an ethical issue. Um, I think this goes to that moral bond we have with patients is... Um, 
we need to be able to reassure them that regardless of what happens, that we are, we are there to take the best care of them we can. And Holly would agree. She sympathizes with the provider's dilemma. I think the doctors are, are doing the best that they can to mitigate it, but I'm sure they didn't learn in medical school how to address this issue. <laughs> you know, there's really no ethical standards that mm-hmm. or guidelines that doctors have to follow. There's no laws around how they distribute that medication that's in shortage, which even that alone is just unbelievable. Holly believes it's in the patient's right to be an active part of their own care. But also that doing such a great job with workarounds may work against everyone's interest and help prolong the issue. Have I thought about why this has continued to happen? Because they're, it's, it's not transparent. Doctors don't have enough time as it is to spend with their patients. Now imagine adding, how long does it take to explain to someone who has never been aware of a drug shortage in their life to understand that their outcome could be impacted by not having a medication that costs pennies? Or... As Angela Sandlin, lead pharmacist at Baptist LaGrange, put it, "We're trying our best to solve the problem in the background, and come what what may, I'm going to I'm going to get it from a legitimate supplier somehow." If there is a problem with the 737 Max 8 Boeing jet, everybody hears about it. Uh, if there is a problem with Fannie and Freddie uh, or the auto industry, everybody hears about it. I don't know what it make what makes shortages of life-saving drugs you know, not as sexy. Whatever the case, the focus is providing the best care. Maybe that means telling the patient everything about every adjuvant or replacement, or every adjuvant use because of a replacement, or maybe that means continuing to do the job without involving the patient in those details. For Ed and his department. The decision came down to a desire to build that relationship with the patient and the patient's family. I think we're very fortunate that patients are willing to give us that trust. Uh, that trust comes with an incredible amount of responsibility because, I mean, really when, when our patients are under our care, you know, we are required to provide the most personalized form of medicine possible. Everything that the patient needs, everything that that person can't do for him or herself is our responsibility. Um, and because of that, um, yeah, I think that patients trust us to make those decisions. And we, we have to take that, that responsibility very seriously um, and think, too, well, if, if that was me on the other end or if that was a, my family member on the other end, um, what would I want? Um, and try to make those decisions accordingly. And that trust is especially important because as much as she wants to be a part of the process as a patient— Ultimately, (laughs) (laughs) I have no control, and I'm completely aware of that every day. (laughs) Innovation at Maspo never stops. Sedline brain function monitoring and O3 regional oximetry are available together en route, a single patient monitoring and connectivity hub. With Sedline, clinicians gain key insights on the state of the brain under anesthesia through bilateral data acquisition and processing of EEG signals. O3 Regional Oximetry supports clinicians by monitoring cerebral oxygenation, offering essential information on changes in tissue oxygenation. The ROOT platform brings these two powerful and complementary monitoring technologies together in one display. Discover a more complete picture of the brain. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O dot com.
So what exactly are the solutions? How do we put an end to the provider's dilemma? How do we put an end to shortages altogether? One of the solutions came through a mixture of legislation and capitalism and had been part of the health manufacturing ecosystem long before shortages became common. 503B compounding pharmacies. This option fell out of favor after the New England compounding tragedies, where 64 people died and about 750 were sickened when compounded medications were tainted with fungal meningitis. While disastrous, the tragedy did result in new legislation to monitor the safety of compounding facilities. The creation of 503A and 503B accredited compounding. It's the Drug Quality and Security Act of 2013. You can think of 503A as the place where a patient needs a special prescription. Maybe they have an allergy to one of the pill's components. So the doctor writes up a special script for that patient, and one batch is made. 503B is much larger. Hospitals with 503B licenses prove they have the necessary facilities and know-how to compound drugs in large batches. That's why it could be used to help fill a shortage void for a hospital, health system, or several health systems. Three years ago, Nephron, a company that started by making albuterol in 1997, set its sights on a 503B license to specifically produce drugs in shortage. Um, We're a 408,000 square foot facility. We have everything housed under one roof. Where you walk through the facility, you will see robots, you will see packaging and machines and um, automated syringe fillers and um, automated, semi-automated labelers. You'll see... Yes, my name is Stephanie Simmons. I am an RN and my title is Chief Marketing of Operations at Nephron Pharmaceuticals. 503B pharmacies opened the door at least a little making it much easier for smaller companies to get into manufacturing. The FDA has a regulation in the 503B um, industry that if you are part of that and manufacturing, you are able to apply for an expedited and a review, um, which is nine months versus three years. So when you get that quality certification for 503B, you could respond to what is in shortage at the moment. And that's part of the draw. We begin to enter the 503B market. And um, what we are selling is products that are on the drug shortage list. We have over 40 products um, and more continuing every day. Here's just a few. Amino acid injection, bupivacaine 0.25% HCL injection, 10% calcium chloride injection, 50% dextrose injection. We do follow the FDA drug shortage list. Fentanyl citrate We put the um, products that we have available in a couple of different um, delivery methods. So we have pre-filled syringes, we have IV bags, and then we also recently started, um, based on our respiratory experience, we've been able to take that blow-fill seal technology that we've used um, in the respiratory respiratory product, and we um, have started putting products into blow-fill seal vials or bottles with a lure lock top. And Stephanie says that those product types, specifically blow-fill seals, can help in and of themselves with drug shortage. We can make over you know 29,000 vials an hour on our automated machinery in the blow-fill seal. As shortages seal. are in flux, they're trying to keep up with what drugs they should produce to fill demand. They don't just look at what's on the official shortage list. out to clinicians through our sales force um, so that we may get ideas about what they're struggling with most, what's most important, and then we take those um, uh, that information and then we um, begin to consider our pipeline as we add new products into the um, formulation. 
it isn't just Nefron that has its finger on the pulse of drug shortages. We also talked to Bibron. They are making significant investments in existing facilities in Irvine, California. And we are expanding our manufacturing facility in Allentown, where we manufacture a lot of the products that are also used for IV therapy. And we have a new, again, state-of-the-art um, distribution facility in Daytona Beach. And we are enhancing the other existing um, distribution facilities one of them in Ontario, uh, California, and the other one in Burgessville, uh, Pennsylvania. My name is uh, Maria Angela Karpf. I'm a physician um, by training, and I am the corporate vice president of medical affairs for Bibron in the U.S. But Angela has since transitioned out of her position from Bibron. We put together the $1 billion investment um, on IV solution shortages only. And that money isn't simply a response to Hurricane Maria which, if you remember, had wiped out IV fluid manufacturing on Puerto Rico in 2017. The first pictures now coming in from Puerto Rico after taking a direct hit. Hurricane Maria slamming into the island, and as you heard, one official saying the island is destroyed. Maria is the first Category 4 to hit there in so the So the, the investment that we started and the work that we started on, on increasing uh, production of um, IV solutions started before um, before this, and talking to healthcare workers, talking to hospitals, um, uh, uh, supply chain leaders, uh, key stakeholders, that just cemented our intention and our commitment to making sure that we do everything that we can. Therefore, this large investment. Talking about preventing um, IV shortages is not enough. There is a need to do something to make sure that doesn't happen again. We're walking the talk. Another player in this game is not a manufacturer, but a group purchasing organization, a GPO. We're out recruiting manufacturers, uh, as I mentioned earlier. We anticipate to be bringing forward with Provide GX a lot of new uh, products that are on the shortage list. Blair Childs, I'm senior vice president at Premier. We use data and we use uh, aggregation of uh, healthcare providers across the country to improve quality and, re and safely reduce cost. Most recently, they've announced a partnership with Amphistar Pharmaceuticals to produce phytonodione injections, pre-filled syringes of calcium chloride, epinephrine, sodium bicarbonate, atropine sulfate, dextrose, and lidocaine. And that's in addition to working with Acela Pharma Sciences to produce cysteine hydrochloride and sodium bicarbonate injection, Baxter Healthcare to produce metoparol injection, and Fresenius Cobby to produce a group of medications. So we want a healthy, competitive, effective, stable market. That is our every incentive we have is to do that. And so if there's a failure in the marketplace and it causes a shortage and there's nobody you know, selling the product, we're obviously not doing any business in that area. So it's not in our interest. But thankfully, Blair says it's getting better. FDA has taken a very aggressive stand at trying to speed the process to get approvals of new ANDAs, uh, new generic drug applications. It took four to five years in the past to get a new ANDA approved. So when you had a shortage, you would have a shortage for that period of time. It was a real problem. We work, as I said, very closely in partnership with manufacturers. And so we actually work with FDA, with the manufacturer, to get the product through the process at FDA as quickly as possible. Blair spoke about their work advocating for legislation and regulations specifically mentioning FIDASIA in 2012. I mean, it should be a situation where FDA has 
a modern computer screen that can show them right in front of them where these products are coming from, you know, where the API is coming from, the quantity, the risk of shortages, things of that nature. They should have that information and they don't currently. And that's one of the things that we think should be addressed so that there's clarity as to who's manufacturing, where it's being manufactured. And by so doing, FDA may not inadvertently do something that could be harmful, like close a API manufacturer that could have a huge ripple effect. Or if a storm hits Puerto Rico again, you actually know that some critical products are being manufactured there. You're going to be more nimble and able to you know, be prepared in advance uh, or recognize in advance the potential risks. But Blair says there are ways to get more manufacturers to the marketplace. It's what Provide GX is doing already, creating certainty in the market for manufacturers to produce medications. They feel comfortable and confident in, to invest. As a result of this, we over a hundred products currently on the shortage list. We make fully available to our members right now. Premier, Bibron, Nephron, they're all working and expanding within the system that's already built. It's going to be hard, right? I mean, it's a very complex problem. It's been going on for over 10 years. New companies like Civica RX are billing themselves as outside-the-box thinkers. I was told a long time ago that if it's hard to do and it has a great reward at the end of the day, you should roll up your sleeves and, and go after it. My name's Martin Van Trieste. I'm the CEO of a nonprofit startup company called Civica. Um, I've been in the pharmaceutical business for 35 years. I've worked at three large pharmaceutical firms, Abbott Laboratories, Bayer Healthcare, and Amgen. Civica's plan to give manufacturers and health systems peace of mind starts with a simple membership model. All members have the exact same rights. We have one transparent price for all health systems. So there's no price difference for the small hospital or the largest health system in America, and they have equal access to all of the drugs. And currently, Civica uses that money and backing to make deals within manufacturing plans. All drug shortages are caused by a broken economic system so that the price has gotten way too low on these very complex sterile injectable products. So... Companies have just stopped making them. They say, I'm going to take my resources and do something else. We've gone back to many of those suppliers and we said, we know you have the license from the FDA to make this product. We believe you have the capability. Do you have the capacity to do it? If we give you a price that we call is fair and sustainable, fair is what the hospitals will pay. That's fair. And sustainable is what do you need to get back into the business to make the product. And clearly that's the fastest way. Civica is also looking to get into manufacturing directly. We're already developing our own data on products to get our own license from the FDI. So we either buy or develop our own, our own data for FDA license. And then we'll start using contract manufacturers to make that product. And then finally, and we're doing this now, we're either going to build or buy our own manufacturing capacity. Now, the way manufacturing is done right now in the United States, it's, it's an interrupted process. It, it, you start with um, taking 
uh, the drugs and you batch them together and you mix them together in a big vat and typically in, in one manufacturing plant and then you put it on a truck and you ship it to another place and, and then you start doing right. the manufacturing. We've been through all of this before. That whole process, the way that drugs are manufactured now in the United States, takes for most drugs in the order of about 200 days to make a drug, they make a batch of a drug. The remarkable thing about the continuous process is that it can make a batch of drugs in two days. Now, you might be thinking that 200 days to make a drug down to two days is actually a 99% reduction in manufacturing time. And that math is right. That's huge. Ernie was only being cautious about that reduction estimate. Ernie is consulting for Continuous Pharmaceuticals, a company spun out of research conducted at MIT that has patented a unique continuous manufacturing process. All of the quality, interestingly enough, is built into the process. So the purification of the drug uh, is a continuous process, hence the name. And that includes capsules, injectables, IV drugs, vials of drugs, and topicals. The only thing they can't produce are biologics. And how do they do this? They work from raw product to end product. All in one facility. So the the uh, the manufacturing um, apparatus and the filtration process, the manufacturing process, it is all self-correcting. So if there's if there's a problem with the the product not being pure enough, it goes back and it purifies it more because it's measuring it during the process. It's all self-contained. So it's it's pretty amazing. Recently, Continuous Pharmaceuticals was able to raise five million in funding. They've completed their final pilot plant studies and are hoping to begin an expansion on its flagship commercial manufacturing facility later this year. So you think about that from a from a um, a drug shortage standpoint. It's almost like you can if you use the continuous process if, and if we can build that into the way that we make drugs in the United States um, it's possible that we could actually address the shortage issues just through continuous manufacturing and behind all of these solutions are people the very people who represent the line between these shortages being a policy crisis and a full-blown humanitarian disaster and throughout his reporting W. Harry Fortuna, our producer, has heard of some creative alternatives that providers employ to work around these shortages. For instance, at the Cleveland Clinic, when they were busy looking for alternatives to the saline shortage in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. So we were trying to figure out like what else we could do uh, to get medications into our patients. And if you don't um, remember that voice, that's Chris Snyder, the drug shortage pharmacist for the Cleveland Clinic. He's been in a lot of our previous episodes. And he says the biggest question for them was not how to get the drugs into the patients. Because IV push was something we knew right away like would, would be a solution for a good majority of our drugs. But how exactly was that IV push going to work? Um, we were looking at, you know, kind of dumb pumps. If we couldn't get enough syringe pumps, we could, which, which are electronic devices, we could have spring-loaded devices to infuse it. Um, it was going to be a, a big outlay, but the organization was willing to do it. And that sign-off was important because it was going to force many of the staff out of their comfort zone. And it was going to be a big task to get all of the material together that they needed to accomplish that. There was drugs that we did IV push, some that went to larger volume sizes and with extended Hang infusion time. times. Mm -hmm. um, and then these vials that we were going to have that we could, you know, make diluent basically a 
IV bag and 50 ml or 100 ml and then put the drug into as we needed. And I found, necessity being what it is and all that, the mother of invention, that these kinds of happy accidents happened all over the place. We did have to push some medications. Once again, Angela Sandlin. Actually, we weren't out of the saline at the time in those little bags, but we chose to push some medications that normally we would have hung for infusion simply because it's it's a little bit faster for the nurse, a little more convenient to just hang it and leave. But we did have to push some things previously, and they actually found out that they liked that. You know, that that was really a little quicker than uh, hanging, you know, having the tubing and, and do all that. But that was only part of it, though. Um, that's, again, where pharmacy and anesthesia work extremely closely together is. Angela's colleague, Alicia Ingram, says because of that, communication is key. If they know there's a shortage and and that we're getting a different type of concentration and a different vial and it's going to look different, then they need to really communicate that to us so that we're not having any type of... Um, of a bad outcome. Through research, study, and a little bit of a creative spirit, Alicia has instituted protocols that have helped deal not just with shortages, but also with the growing fears of opioid dependence. Alicia was very forward thinking in thinking about non-opioid uh, pain management. She's used ketamine. She's used magnesium. She's been very innovative. And these are not only better from the standpoint of you have a shortage of narcotics, but they're amazing because you don't get the side effects mm-hmm. that you get from those opioids. You have much quicker recovery time, less opioid use, less danger of uh, someone feeling that they, you know the need for, for those for a longer period than they do need them. But happy accidents aside, What I heard over and over again from almost every provider that I spoke with was that the best defense against these drug shortages are a hospital-wide policy of preparation and communication. Different institutions do different things by, by nature, and it's very haphazard sometimes. And if you happen to be a patient who shows up to an institution that is thoughtful and planned well, good for you. If you happen to show up because in your neighborhood, it's the hospital that you go to and and they're not as forward thinking, that's not very cool. And there's a lot of, you know, ethics and justice issue matters, let alone practical ones. Because whether it's hyperbaric bupivacaine or another local anesthetic or another analgesic drug or another anesthetic drug, or it's an antibiotic, um, we're going to be facing drug shortages for the near future, for the rest of our career, perhaps. And that brings to a close the first season of The Etherist. Our hope was that we could pull back the curtain on the pharmaceutical manufacturing process and show a little bit about what the causes of these shortages might be. I hope that we were able to accomplish that. All of us here at Anesthesiology News, we'd like to thank you for listening. The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, our executive producer, and our producers, W. Harry Fortuna, Megan Lee Callahan. Half an hour, an hour a day to talk about what we're not getting and what's coming in and uh, what our plan is if we don't get it. But, so, is it end of the world? No. We just have to, it takes a little bit period of adjustment to to get going. Music was by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. So I think it's it's really important to have the processes in place and the continuous dialogue. And and I think it's a very complex, sort of evolving process, but I've been impressed at how well it's gone here. And we had help from 
Adam Marcus, David Bronstein, Marie Rosenthal, Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Matt White, Martin Barbieri, Kwangy Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone. We've certainly tackled the problem that um, has just grown and grown. We finally, you know, finally started uh, getting a bit of a handle on it, and it's definitely better. And special thanks to our sponsor, Massimo. I'm James Pruden, the editorial director of NSC's IG News. Thanks for listening.